I have to maintain the ancient traditions. I bear the weight of my father's crown. His hands bore the blood of thousands of children. My people. And I can no longer hide in the desert while they suffer. At your hands. I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, the sex music podcast, at least for today. It's Opus 69. Brown chicken, brown cow. <laughs> we have some uh, sex-themed music, classical and otherwise, to talk about in the second movement. Looking forward to that. Um, Derek mentioned today's guest for the third movement actually engages that conversation um, a little bit himself. You know, I'm looking forward to uh, sharing uh, that with you alongside a conversation about one of his upcoming um, projects. He mentioned uh, Michelangelo Scott being uh, one am. of his early you know inspirational artist so that's why I chose the photo that I chose for this 69th opus <laughs> of Triloquist so you could take a look at that uh, today's cold open uh, comes from um, Pixar's uh, Prince of Egypt um, which you know we'll get into in the Triloquy um, let, j- j- just to give you a preview I'm Moses and Scott is Ramses okay <laughs> you get to be an African I hope you're happy about that <laughs> I'm fine with it. You have any uh, any uh, shout outs or announcements? Yes, I do want to give a quick shout out to Tara Hopkins, who sent in a, a really nice email through the Triloquy website. She's in Turkey, you know. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm not sure what time it is there, but I think music through the night was like in the afternoon for her or something. Mm-hmm. And so she knows both of us through the overnight shifts. And she said that now that uh, you're no longer there, thank goodness for Triloquy. So she's been listening to the podcast. And uh, with love from a Valak, where she's living. So thanks, Tara. Yeah, thank you so much for that shout out, uh, uh, for, for, for that note. Uh, I wanted to shout out uh, Caesar, who's uh, been on uh, the podcast before. He and I uh, recently um, submitted the proposal for a book that we're co-authoring. Oh, uh, was that the 10-hour Zoom call? The 10-hour Zoom call. So shout out to Caesar for pushing me over the finish line, as as grouchy as I know I was being, but, but, but we did it. Um, I won't spend any time talking about uh, the book today, but I'm excited about it. Uh, we actually have a meeting uh, with an editor tomorrow so hopefully all goes well it's I'll, I'll tell you now it's not like a, a gossipy tell-all it's definitely sort of an educational book but w- but one that I think uh, folks will enjoy so I'll, I'll, I'll bring that up uh, again um, on, a, on a later opus but anyway um, let's get let's get into some of uh, this week's uh, news articles and, and check these accidentals First and foremost, I, I kind of feel like it's a mix between a natural and a flat that I have. So in the last opus in the Triloquy, uh, I mentioned offhand uh, the Met Opera's Wagner Week. Mm-hmm. Um, but we didn't really go into that. So um, I, I wanted to, I guess it's a mix of a natural and a flat, uh, as we'll get into. But um, I, I wanted a to... Flatural. A flatural. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to circle back around um, to talk about them a little bit. Scott, I sent you this um, article today about the Met from the New York Times. I'll post it uh, on the in the description. Uh, the title of it is, For the Met Opera, the Pandemic Could Be a Necessary Reset. 
said. So before we talk about, you know, have the conversation of what we're coming back to and what can it look like when we can crowd the concert hall again, Mm -hmm. um, the Met Opera is one of many um, organizations, institutions that have digital concerts on for people to enjoy. And one of them is a whole week full of Wagner. What do you think? I almost said a whole week full of vodka. (laughs) For the record, by the way, before we jump into it, for the record, we're recording this a little earlier than we usually do. I feel I feel more animated. Maybe I need the, you know, the substances to dull me down a little bit or something. Or a big meal. Uh, or yeah, we haven't eaten yet either. <laughs> Shout out to Dell who's upstairs making stew. Okay, anyway, it's not full of vodka. It's a week full of Wagner. And it's also full of James Levine. Get into that. Get into that for the people who don't know. James Levine had all sorts of accusations leveled against him about inappropriate sexual mm-hmm. behavior. And he was canceled, and then all of a sudden he started popping up in Europe, Trickling right? Trickling back in, yep. Popping back up. Now, we should also emphasize that these things that the Met's putting out, this is archive performances, right? Right, right, right. Okay, so out of their entire catalog, are there any other conductors? In the world. Did any, did any other no, conductors no, because ever they, exist? No, right. Oh, you're talking about... Because oh, these are archived. In the catalog of their... Oh, right. You're right. You're so right. Yeah, there's, surely there have to be. There has to be a different conductor. Because out of seven, only one was not accused of inappropriate behavior. In the year 2020, do you think it's worse to do a Wagner week or a sexual predator on the podium I, week? I don't know. I think they put everything on red <laughs> and just... And just hit roulette, you know? Joke, just, I guess joke, jokes aside, the sexual predator on the podium is worse because there are people alive who, you know, but there are people alive who have a feeling, um, you know, and I shouldn't say but, and there are people alive who have um, a feeling about Wagner as well. That's Wagner isn't really the hill I die on or try to die on as much as I rail against Handel, which we'll get to here in a second. But I think there is something to be said about an organization who is uh, in the dark right now, like all others of many sizes. And this is a decision that they made. It just was there no one in the room that said, "Well, I was just about to say, file this under not reading the room." And, and and maybe they had the dis- discussion and decided, well, you know, there are enough people who really love Wagner for us to put this out, Wagner for a whole week. So what does that mean? You know, especially, again, for an organization as uh, big as the Met. So I'm sure that what if what if one of the five kajillion dollar donors said, y'all better put some fucking Wagner on or I'm going to be pissed. And, and I want to hear James it conducting it back in the halcyon days. Mm, mm, mm. So that means money just wins it all in, in opera, huh? I guess my dad always said he was nervous about things turning into an oligarchy and and isn't it is isn't that what happened even in the arts so anyway that's what we were talking about uh what i mentioned in the uh triloquy last week if you have an opinion on wagner or 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 whatever uh one way or the other reach out i would love to hear about it but anyway uh this article um again titled for the met opera the pandemic could be a necessary reset i thought was really interesting because you know they're talking about of course you know the conversations of race and what um, everyone has been talking about um, all of a sudden, um, shade but no shade but shade there, and um, but but also you know programming and 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 all that um, sort of thing, uh, just from the title alone, excuse me, of the article. Um, do you think this is a necessary reset for the Met? We touched on this. I don't remember what opus number it was. Both of us were 
kind of thinking that big organizations like this would be going with what they know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we weren't even reading tea leaves or looking into the crystal ball, but look what happened. So it's got to be money. They might, maybe they need money, and this is what we know makes money. I don't know. I've never been, you know, I've never worked for an orchestra. Yeah, I mean, the, the conversation of, you know, what are we coming back to is just, um, you know, ha- ha- happening everywhere. And I'll appreciate the fact that um, the Met is having this conversation. And the reason why I can, you know, throw them a little bit of bail as one of these oppressive structures is that uh, at least this article um, has gone to the uh, length of really exploring and examining the Mets' past as far as, you know, the inequities there. That's a good point. Um, so uh, one thing's that they're, um, which is good news, but, you know, sort of mixed news, again, flatural, as we said, <laughs> um, they're coming back uh, with an opera. It's not a world premiere opera, but it's an opera uh, by Terrence Blanchard. Um, it's going to be the first time um, an opera by a black person has been, um, has, has happened at the Met in the however many years, you know, it's called uh, Fire Shut Up in My Bones is the name uh, of the opera. Um, so that's good, you know, that they're having that conversation. But for this to be the first time ever that a, an opera by a black person um, has, has been on that stage, I think that shines a light on, um, you know, the issue of are you going to be there to survive? You know, well, you know, why should we, you know, after 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 all this time, why should we care about what y'all have going on? If go back and listen. Yeah. Go back and listen to the opus with Titus Underwood. And he talks about how tired he is about these firsts. Yeah. 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 Go back to Titus. And then um, in this article, it also talks about um, an opera about I'm, I'm scrolling for the name. Oh, Anthony Davis, of course, um, who I'm going to be collaborating with here in, uh, in a bit. Uh, Anthony Davis, um, he wrote an opera about Malcolm X. It's called X, The Life and Times of Malcolm X. And um, it premiered all the way back in 1986 with the New York City Opera, you know, just a, another company. But the Met wasn't having that, you know. They, they, they weren't having that back in 1986, the year before I was born, for goodness sakes. And 30 years later... Um, there's still the issue of, you know, no black opera. I know you're giggling there. I make the, but, but think about that in the time that I've been alive, you know, and a year beyond that, they, there's been this opera that has existed directly in New York, New York city opera. And the Met has yet to bring it in. Why? Because I guess we just really need that fucking Wagner, don't we? And Lars Eric Larson. And <laughs> Did he write an opera? Niels, opera Niels Gada. Yeah, all of them. Anyway, so I will put a, uh, a link to uh, that article. Um, yeah, again, Flatrel. I'm, I, I'm trying to, you know, calm down my emotions when it comes to burn all of these institutions down. But so, so I'm trying. I, I'm, I'm trying to see a world where a Met opera can, you know, be be doing some equitable work. But with this Wagner week, it, it really just makes me not want to bother at all. I, I put on um, on Twitter uh, a couple weeks ago um, uh, an email that I had sent to an orchestra uh, stepping down from their board. Um, you know, that orchestra uh, for their vir- virtual concerts had handle, had, had the Messiah plan for uh, December. And I can't be around here aligning my, you know, the, the the line has been drawn in the sand a little deeper than I had planned, you know, concerning my employment and all that. So, you know, I'm taking this opportunity to really stand by my guns and, you know, so. 
And I want to send a shout out to anybody who works as a music director or program director at a station that plans on putting Handle on the air. I'd love to talk to them about it. Reach out. I'd love to see what your calculus is on how you're going to. Yeah, talk to Scott because you already know what I'm going to say. You, you don't. You don't. You think that'd be an interesting conversation to hear how people are going to approach it? Maybe for you, the conversation I want to have is there are other, there are black women that exist who wrote music. There I don't know if that was shade or not. Maybe you for know. you. <laughs> Thanks. It's okay. cold over in this shade. Um, I wanted to so to transition us here. I wanted to we we figure out a way to be Gabby no matter what, don't we? <laughs> to, to transition us here, I actually wanted to um, shout out Terrence Blanchard. You know this this opera uh, that that the Met is going to premiere hopefully you know in September of 2021. Um, the first time that um, I, I was really in tune with uh, no pun intended with Terrence Blanchard's oops sorry with Terrence Blanchard's music. I'm getting excited um i went to go see black klansman you know shout out to spike lee a spike lee joint and terrence blanchard um wrote uh, that score wrote a lot of that score and while watching the movie i just found myself listening to that music you know kind of in a way that i hadn't really uh before especially with a with a movie of of that magnitude and that depth and the history of spike lee and all that anyway so um please uh look up uh terrence blanchard's music um incredible composer i wanted to share here a bit of uh his score to black Klansmen to uh, get us into our next little accidental Mine's quick. Did you read that article in the New York Times about orchestras rushing to add black composers? Will it last? Oh, no, wait. It said they're rushing to, they're rushing to add black composers at last? No. Will it last? Oh, will so, it last? Oh, my right. question. So we'll put, we'll put the, uh, the article up, but this is something that we've talked about before. Uh, are we on a bubble? Like in that Jamaican music? Is that what you mean? <laughs> no, I mean like, uh, you know, the housing bubble, the um, the web bubble. You know, is this going to be a market that is going to pop? It seems that that is a conversation that needs to be had because, and, and, and I was kind of saying something along these lines earlier this year, and I know people get weird when we, you know, get into the conversation of intersectionality. What I was saying was it was interesting, you know, following the murder of George Floyd, how quickly Black Lives Matter turned into like BIPOC initiatives, and now we're including this, and, 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 and this is not me saying, oh, we shouldn't care about anybody else, um, you know, but... If that was the case, if, if we kind of, you know, phased away from centering blackness for a second that quickly, yeah, including blackness um, is going to go out the window as well. And, mm. and again, that's why we talk about really doing something with these institutions, getting them out of here, because what proof do we have that um, they are, are going to care about us at all? My question is about how you find yourself a free agent now. And you've got people in your DMs and your inbox trying to get you to come work for them. Okay, so are you are you leery? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And and you know, I've <laughs> it's taken me longer than it should, but 
I've, I've come up with a certain number of questions that sort of determine where in my inbox, where in my calendar, where in my priorities people go. One of them is how many black people do you have on staff? I think that's one of the first questions. You know, also uh, beyond this, I was talking with somebody in New York about this earlier today uh, who's trying to get me to do some stuff. Um, I said, you know, beyond this one initiative, what are your goals? What are you trying to do? You know, and it's obvious who is prepared for that question and who isn't. So it's one thing if the people prepared for that question mean it, at least they're prepared for the question, but so many other folks just are not ready. But again, that 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 first inquiry that I give, you know, how many black people do you have on staff? Some organizations can um, answer that in the affirmative and, and some organizations, you know, mm. got rid of their only black person. Mm. And people wonder why I say it's going to take 10 years. I mm. mean, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, I was just curious if you saw it and, and it, you know. So, so, think, so what are your opinions? I mean, do you think this we're doing this right now and it's going to be over this time next year? Uh, as soon as I saw that headline, the first thought that entered my mind was, God, I hope so. Please don't have this be a flash in the pan sort of, you know, we're going to start paying attention to it until everybody shuts up. Please. In your Don't make it a flash in the pan initiative. In your time in radio, um, have, have you seen something else that's kind of come up and lasted? You know, well, Sonny, I tell you, back in my for day, real, we put I'm a couple hamsters in under the... Okay, all right, all right, all right, you're 50. <laughs> finish your, finish your question. I didn't mean to be disrespectful. Uh, no, 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 I was just saying, is, is there something that has sort of come up and lasted? You know, it's not, we, we talk, the names we always throw out there, Beethoven, Mozart, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's not only them, you know, so maybe you've seen what people engage, expand, you know, even just incrementally in your, in your time, in your 30 years in the biz. As far as composers or Composers, musicians. a sound, anything, anything. Well, um, I don't know. Joshua Bell, Yo-Yo Ma, those people have sort of that star power, staying power. Anne-Sophie Mutter has been a constant, right? Oh, I'm sorry. I guess, I guess what I'm asking is like, yeah, shout out to all of them. But what I'm asking is like the attention being paid to equitable work in the arts and classical music right now, has there been something, you know, did, did you live, what, did you live through as a professional folks paying attention to women composers for the first time or paying attention to American composers, you know, leaving Europe? Or is, is there another moment that you have seen in um, your, your career in classical music that kind of mirrors or reminds you or is at least even reminiscent of this moment? Something that lasted. If you go back to your comment about, you know, paying attention to more American composers, I'd expand that out. And when I was doing the morning show at the radio station, I came here from, I was trying to include living composers and 20th century composers yeah. more. So like the, the latter half of my shift was usually pretty heavy on those. Um, women composers, I have to say it's been in the last, um, boy, I'm going to get called on this one too, uh, like the last five to seven years. When that, when that has really begun to... See more of women composers coming through, but with more regularity yeah. that's what I'm saying not just on some holiday or birthday or something like that right um, and as a matter of fact uh, last weekend um, Thursday night was pretty amazing I think probably half the stuff was either played by or composed by women it was a really eclectic night I had on Thursday oh well good for you good for you at your job making money 
Um, <laughs> um, what? Uh, can write that edit point down. <laughs> no, that's staying. That is staying. <laughs> what? Um, so, in light of you know this not just being a flash in the pan, you know, I have another phrase I hadn't hadn't heard by the way. And so, instead of this being a flash in the pan, you know, staying power. I wonder if there um, is a composer, a black composer, who um, has come on your radar in the past couple of years that you really appreciate. Um, being exposed to and that you want to stick around. Yeah, you might have to help me with the name, but I think it's James Johnson, and he's a master of stride piano. I think it's James Price Johnson. James Price Johnson, okay, yeah. yeah. Wrote the Harlem Symphony. I had that. I had, did you? yeah. That was uh, that, that's the second time that I've played it here recently. Um, got uh, in touch with uh, Nathaniel Dett. And Justin, another, another great pianist. Justin Holland. Yeah. Oh, Jonathan Bailey Holland, maybe. Do you? Oh, I don't know. I don't think I know. John, Justin, Justin Holland. Holland was a guitarist, oh, and okay. uh, he taught, but he also worked on the on the Underground Railroad for a while. Oh, wow! So he was an activist as well as being a uh, black guitarist. We are definitely going to get into um, some of our sexy music for the 69th Opus of Triloquy, but there's one more um, accidental I wanted to bring in. I guess I'll I'll give this one a sharp. So it's more local, but you know it 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 rings close to home for me. So I came across a um, a headline that said Gopher Band returns with instrument raps designed by Minnesota Company. So. Um, for folks who don't know, Gophers are the team for one of the sports balls teams here in Minnesota. I don't know. But they have a band. They have a marching. That's what I care about. They have a marching band um, affiliated with them. And because of COVID and everything, you know, aerosols and it's even outside, you know, when you talk about marching bands, that's multiple hundreds of people sometimes. Um, but um, this Minnesota company has designed instrument wraps that go over where the air and things come out and is supposed to block the aerosol. Now, this is the problem, Scott, with instruments like, um, and and I think you talked about, um, or or one of us uh, talked about the test that they did for different instruments, which instrument is the most dangerous, and it's the flute. Uh, So with instruments like the flute, you know, the bassoon that I play, you know, the sound doesn't just come out of one thing right, is right. tone holes everywhere and all right. that but um but a lot of these look like the whole instrument is covered up which actually tuba you know um well yeah the bell of the tuba but even for the woodwinds these sacks cover the entire instrument so you can't even see the saxophone or you can't even you know even though you can hear it so i guess what i wanted to ask you if if you are going to again the sports ball game that uh, the gophers represent uh when, when you see <laughs> halftime I mean, do you think the look of a lot of people carrying around just bags, like white bags? Or, I mean, is that something that you think we can get used what are, to? What are we there for? Are we there for the music and and for the excitement of hearing some live music? Or are we there to see some shiny instruments? This is the thing. Where I come from, we're there for the music, okay? Up here, you know, it, it, it maybe it's a different story. So, Well, that's my question. If you, if you want to... <laughs> If you want to hear the music, does it matter if the saxophone is in a bag? 
But there's something about or the, the trumpet. But right. But there's something about the visual of it as well. And we can be. Does the bag and, inflate and deflate okay, as they blow? Okay. But see, and we can and, and we can glow? be music historians about it because think about in the days of Vivaldi. They should put when tea they were lights all, in there when they were all behind the um, the the screen. So if you went to a um, you know bringing the screen back up in a different way. Mm. So if you went to an orchestra concert. Um, would it not be a slightly different experience to see the orchestra versus a facade of the shadow facade of the orchestra? That'd be kind of wild. Yeah. So, I, so I guess I'm comparing the thing. Would it be kind of just different to see 200 people holding white bags but still hearing the sound of the band? I think that they could make it work. On the right stuff. That could really break t- take your mind somewhere, huh? Sure. Anyway, I just wanted to shout out. So here's a little... Um, a performance by the Gopher Band to uh, get us into the second movement so we can talk about some of the sex music. Welcome back. So um, once again, Opus 69, Scott had the bright idea for us to talk about some music that would, um, you know, take us there. So, <laughs> so here we are. Cur- and, and there's some I'm, classical in here too, by the way. It's not just you know. Did you have parameters for choosing your music this week? Well, was it in from an era or an artist or? Well, well no, and it's interesting because you know, as I was thinking about it, most songs on the, I mean, yeah, sure, most songs on the radio, uh, you know, just pop stations or whatever, if it's not love or heartbreak, it, it it's sex or something else, you know. So I think a, all, music, a, all music is sex. Day, I mean, <laughs> all music is sex. Yeah. It a, just a, depends on the kind of sex you're having. Right. Um, so I, I kind of just went with different experiences in, I've, you know, in, in this new era in my life. I've been looking back at, you know, different times. So I think I, I went back to a specific time in my life uh, to pick a couple non-classical tunes. But I also... Um, as I said, had a couple classically. Should, should we start classically or, or, or get right to it? Let's start classically. Okay. So <laughs> the, the big example that I always bring up, you know, when I had to do this on the radio uh, down in, uh, at WUOT, I don't think I actually, ever actually have this piece of music on my playlist at APM, uh, is Strauss's Dance of the Seven Veils. Sure. So, I mean, this is, this is one that you know for sure. I've, I've performed it a couple times. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what I always <laughs> loved, um, and, and it's from the, I think it's an opera called Salome. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what I always loved... Um, um, describing to the people was that when we talk about a dance of veils, of seven veils, that's basically uh, early, earlier, as far as Western Europe is concerned, um, burlesque or sure. striptease or, yeah. or or anything like that. And I think the music um, definitely, the opera certainly speaks to it. And I think the music gives you that idea of, you know, the seven veils and all that sort of thing. Have you ever, um, have you ever uh, been involved? Done the dance of in, the seven veils? Yes, done not. the dance of the seven No. Have you ever uh, gone to <laughs> see and you know we can talk about strip clubs whatever but i mean an actual burlesque an actual you know something where you know they're actually trying to bring forward that art and that tradition in the performance before things were shut down the twin cities were uh, had a huge burlesque scene uh and i forget I, I i know i'm going to butcher it but i remember the headliner to the one that i went to at first avenue was tomahawk tammy or something like that hmm. I think, but um, 
It was amazing. They did some things behind the screen and they had handed out 3D glasses. So there was like this perspective thing that they did that was really interesting. Oh, amazing. Wow. Yeah, some amazing stuff. And uh, Mustache Jim was the barker. You know, he's this guy that has this classic handlebar mustache and a top hat, you know. And yeah, Mustache Jim hosted that one. Oh, wow. Nice Shout one. out to Mustache Jim. Boom, bum, bum, boom. <laughs> Shout out to Strauss for writing uh, The Dance of the Seven Veils. There's a little bit of that. I have to tell you a quick story about when I first started announcing classical music and I didn't know shit about anything. And it was like my first or second classical shift in the midday. And I called up to the program director and I said, Bolero just came up on the playlist. Am I supposed to play this? And he says, yeah, why wouldn't you play that? And I said, it was in the movie 10. That's when Bo Derek was having sex with Dudley Moore to, to Bolero. And he said, it, it came out before 10. <laughs> oh, but it was the piece Bolero. Did you tell that story on the radio? You should have. <laughs> no, I didn't. I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> I was a jazz guy, and they said, hey, the... Oh, it was like a jazz Bolero. No, no, no. Was no I was I was normally a jazz host, and this was my first oh, time, my first or second day trying classical. Look at you asking permission. I mm. did it. I mm. did it. Mm. Well, <laughs> the other... You know, the other one, though, uh, Dance of the Young Kurds from Guyana Ballet. Yeah, by Ketchaturian. That yeah. that also has sort of a um, a building to a climax, sort of a feel that that Bolero does. Yeah, shout out to Arm Kachaturian, uh, Armenian composer. Um, I love all, he has a, um, and we'll talk about this another time, he has a violin concerto that the flute players play all the time hmm. um, that I used to put into the playlist all the time. But anyway, uh, so my, my other, um, you know, classical, so-called classical uh, sex, sex-themed sex piece I wanted to make sure I brought up uh, is a piece by a composer named Thomas Addis. Now, do you know, I know that, the name. you know, Thomas Addis? So his music is a little more out there. You know, it's it's a little more left field, but but uh, still really phenomenal. The, the first time I experienced Thomas Addis uh, was when I was with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. We did his uh, violin concerto, incredible piece of music. But anyway, he also wrote um, an opera, a chamber opera called Powder Her Face. And I'm just going to um, just read from the Wikipedia here because you know how I love to misconstrue a story. So <laughs> it says the subject of the opera is the dirty duchess, Margaret Campbell, um, whose sexual exploits were the stuff of scandal and gossip in Britain in 1963 during her divorce proceedings. Now, the juicy part of the story that I understand is that um, she was caught sucking some dick. Uh, there was a photo, and um, you know, and and it, it sort of not made, of I, the act of apparently. Now, if and, and if you are up on your British history, you know, write in, correct me. But what I had her was, she was uh, a photo was snapped of her on her knees before somebody who you know was not her husband. It sort of um, made uh, the string of pearls iconic, um, and and what uh, <laughs> Thomas Addis did. 
um, in this opera is sort of depict that. So from the opera, you know, like you have with a lot of operas, you have suites, right? So music <laughs> taken from. Mm-hmm. So one of the pieces that I'm I was chucked. I was lucky enough to perform um, down in Knoxville with the Knoxville Symphony was symphonic dances from Powder Her Face, and the opening movement is this slippery sort of slimy tango dance sort of thing, and even um, at the very end, it's supposed to depict, you know, the the final climax as dirty and nasty as it is, you know, as dirty and nasty as it is. So anyway, Thomas Addis, um, powder her face. Um, there's some. There's some. And, and these are just. That's, that's and these a are just terrible quick, title. But but these are just or a great one, right? Uh, but these are just quick examples. You know, we we could talk about. Um, you know, uh, the music that Cummings Saint-Saëns wrote for um, Samson and Delilah. I forget if that was the name Bacchanal. of the battle. Bacchanal. Right. So yeah. all of that, you know, what a Bacchanal is and, you oh, know, yeah. go go further back. And the, so there, there's plenty of um, sex and classical music, but y'all just be so scared to talk about it, you know, as you already uh, <laughs> admitted here before us today. I was 20. <laughs> that was 30 years ago. Okay. so I was too scared to open my mouth about anything at that point. <laughs> so, of course, there are, you know, other bits of music that we, we have to bring in. So, I w- so earlier, I was, a couple minutes ago, I was talking about a certain time of my life. So, you know, longer <laughs> than I've been a, a, a radio host or content creator or whatever, you know, I was working as a bartender. And one of the things I learned as a bartender was that being stared at, when, when, people, when a person stares at you for that long, you know, just stand, sitting at the bar and then you're drinking and whatever, they begin to find aspects of you that they like and they find attractive. So in my time as a bartender, it was never no problem for me to uh, bring somebody home. I just, I'm, and that's not a brag. If anything, it's just a testament to alcohol and being in the space and, and all that sort of thing. So, you know, I, I, was, I was going back to my bartending days and the music that would really just get me going. And one of, one of the songs that would kind of come through the mix all the time was a tune by Ariana Grande. It's not one of her latest or anything. This would have been back in, I don't know, 2016-ish. Uh, a tune called Let Me Love. You and the original track features um, Lil Wayne, um, but I've I, what I really always used to play on when the when the gentleman would see me home uh, <laughs> is a an acoustic version that uh, features guitar um, in a in a way that I think really sets the mood for that um, red lit really you know maybe you got some incense going it's just you know let me let me love you. So, um, yeah, we'll have to 
well, I'll have to see if I can't, I don't know, write out or, or get you to try that um, guitar line. I think it'll, I think you can make it sound sexy okay. too. Okay. <laughs> okay. Are, are you good at making your guitar sound sexy? That's all I do. Oh, oh, oh excuse me. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> I got a, uh, let me see. Yeah, I, I think I got one more, but what, what, what you got here? Talk, talk to me about your sexy music. I'm going to take you all the way back to the late 70s as we are just past the peak of the sexual revolution. People are coked up and going at it hard. <laughs> Okay, so that's that's where I first started to discover, um, you know, getting buying forty fives and things of like Donna Summer, and yeah. uh, you know, so they, we're we're back to the original boots and pants, and they were like, <laughs> "How long are we going to make this beat last?" I have no idea. How about seventeen minutes? That's one. Of, that's how long one of Donna Summer's songs lasts. Um, "Love to Love You" is seventeen minutes. And then, of course, there's her I Feel Love, which is just a repetitive beat and her cooing in your ear for the, the entire uh, length of the track. And, you know, I, I, I think that the, she could have hung out with Philip Glass and they probably would have made some really kick-ass material, I think. And plus, they're, you know, just everybody's in roller skates and leotards and their hair is all teased up and they, you know the headphones look like princess leia earbuds you know they're huge everybody looked ridiculous and it didn't matter it didn't matter it just seemed like people were having fun it just seemed you know were they really worried about oh what are the people going to think of this outfit or did they want to look great of course and not the way they it, want it to look great like i know? said that's you know the we're we're right near the peak of the sexual revolution uh, it was starting to decline at this point, I think, you know, in the late 70s. But Foxy comes out with their track, Get Off. Now, when I first started going to clubs and raves and things like that, uh, the specter of AIDS was on the horizon, sure. you know, that was still very much uh, uh, sort of a danger uh, surrounding sex. And so that's why I was absolutely fine with not going all the way and just getting what e- you could get. Everything but. <laughs> everything because but B U T T? Because it was safe. Because, it, you know, it was fine. You know, that nobody, you know, nobody gets their heart broke too right. bad over that. But. You know, heavy, heavy petting, heavy petting, necking, as my mom used to say. But uh, there was a band. I don't know if it's a band or a DJ or just a person named Latour that came out with a boots and pants club song, rave song that addresses the AIDS issue head on. Lust keeps on lurking. Nothing makes them stop. This AIDS thing's not working. People are still having sex. It's been going on for quite a while. Yeah, that's called People Are Still Having Sex. Now, is any of that music music that you would take into the bedroom is my question. 
No, 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 not like that. <laughs> but, no. but but that gets you ready. That's what you're listening to at, at let's, as you say at the roller rink at the you know? <laughs> at, at the raves. Let's face let's let's call a rave what it is. Okay, it is a mass half clothed drug induced grope session. Sure, and. It's just you knew that that's what you were going to get into when you went in. And, and when we, we would go to the after hours clubs after the bars, when people say something like, oh, do you want to go to the max? We're like, oh, so that's what kind of night it is. Mm-hmm. OK, OK, so we're going to be doing that. Great. Um, Prince comes out with Get Off, his own version. And you remember when George Michael was accused of such salacious behavior when he wrote, I want your sex. The accusations, man. Mm -hmm. How dare Mm -hmm. you talk about sex in music? So in summation, because I could go on and on and on about this as I traveled through my 50 years. (laughs) <laughs> um, I, I right now I'm just uh, I'm in the in the time of COVID. I'm going to take a page out of the Divinals book. When I think about you, I touch myself. Wow. I mean, the stories, I don't know if the Triloquy audience is ready for, well, I'll leave it there. Uh, Triloquy (laughs) after dark. (laughs) But it just seemed like, you know, uh, you know, just the idea of talking about sex and sex music. I mean, you just spewed off there for a minute. I was just, it was just, I was sitting here letting it happen to me. And by the way, (laughs) by the way, if we can go back to the Latour piece, you know, that people are still having sex for a minute. Uh, Classical music shows up in that. I'm trying to think of a, a Bach, baby got Bach. I don't know. I mean, you're, you're better at, you're, you're better at the off, offhand stuff than I am. Uh, well, you know, I, I have one more, um, you know, sort of sex-themed tune I wanted to talk about. Um, so with the Ariana Grande, it's definitely, you know, and, and I think, you know, you can speak to this uh, in, in music from, you know, the 70s, 80s, even 90s to an extent where you didn't just say, come fuck me, you know, in song. It was, you know, there was poetry to it. There was, you know, what, whatever. But, you know, as time goes on, the music gets a little more blatant. Um, and one of the songs that, that I instantly thought of when we talked about um, sex theme songs was one by Jeremiah called, quite frankly, I want to fuck you all the time. Uh, but like the uh, Ariana Grande song, there's this um, there's this vocal. I, I can't. It, it's obviously um, uh, produced done with computers, but the stops, the the hard and and mm-hmm. quick stops that you know you heard in that Ariana Grande, they're also so here in this tune. 
I guess there is a little bit of politeness to it, though, because in the actual song, um, they bleep the the F word. But but still, I mean, I, I wonder what you think about um, the transition of, you know, Mr. Big Stuff to um, wet ass pussy. I don't know. You know, just it getting more obvious and more blatant. Yeah, that's a great point because I mentioned George Michael with I Want Your Sex. Uh, that they that video was prefaced with a explicit content warning and oftentimes they would play the little interview with him where he said it's just about monogamy. That's and it's as simple as that. And now we got Cardi B and Megan the Stallion telling us Telling us what's up. Telling us. <laughs> George, uh, George Michael was the man who sang Careless Whisper, right? Or is that a yep. oh, That's the same one. Yep. Um, had nerve in that video to not only be pretending like he's interested in women, but was cheating on one of the women with the other one. Do you remember that video? We'll watch it later. Vaguely. <laughs> we'll watch it. Because they go through this whole romantic time. And um, as the, the woman that I guess, the mistress, she's sitting there at the vanity getting herself together, just fully confident that this is her bedroom now. And the old woman comes in. And, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll show you. But... I mean, and, and, you know, I'm not fully familiar with George Michael's catalog, but you have to admit, you know, jokes aside from the video, that is a sexy song, especially yeah. that goddamn saxophone. So today's guest, uh, uh, no, uh, if you, um, so so that's, we're, we're going to return to the conversation of sex a little bit in the triloquy. Um, I actually um, asked our guest today, Derek, mention uh, a, a sex-themed question to, to open things up. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, he has a new project um, coming out um, that, that's really phenomenal. He's going to talk a little bit uh, about that. Um, and, and we just talk about, you know, being a creative. Uh, the, the thing that the uh, album is called The Incredible that's that's coming out uh, the thing about the album that really sets it apart is that he is doing many of the voices and not just playing the keyboard here the cello here the bass here but also doing some singing so you know it sort of speaks to you know in this pandemic you know you can't hire 50 people to do different things so you just do it yourself and mm -hmm. I think he did um, a really great job with that I had a phenomenal time um, uh, speaking with him and uh, I hope you enjoy uh, my conversation with him as we uh, got in you know we're talking about all this sexy music um, I remember a few opuses back you talked about putting on some jazz when you wanted you know uh, the, the lady that you had over to feel comfortable and you know sort of relax and all that sort of thing mm -hmm. um, Derek uh, mentioned on a previous album of his has a his own cover of um, At Last and while that's not like a sex song you know maybe not even one to have on in the bedroom while things are going down there is something just very luxurious it's a sweet sexiness that, yeah that'll just get you ready so I thought I would share a little bit of uh, Derek's rendition of that to get us into this third movement At last my You know, the first thing Garrett, that comes to mind is 
uh, any good sexual tryst, if I'm calling it by the right thing, okay, yeah, is accompanied ahead. by good music, right? It's a, it's a mood setter. It's a mood uh, uh, stabilizer, right? And so it's a it's a sonic aphrodisiac. Um, I, the second thing that comes to mind maybe is that we performers who get involved with musical creation are involved in this sort of intimacy with each other that that, that sometimes could be compared to being sexual, right? Yeah. Um, I, you know, hey man, I'm I, I'm a sensualist, so I see everything as either something to eat or something. Well, you know, or something to have sex with, so I can dig it. <laughs> yeah, Sonic Aphrodisiac. That sounds like a, a an album title or something. I right, I like that. <laughs> so, so, right on. so, so, what about you know the performance, and even when we're going outside of the concert hall, outside of con- uh, of concert music and classical yeah. music, what what yeah. makes a performance sexy? What 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 makes the act of performing sensual um, and and getting that feeling across to uh, fellow musicians and even uh, listeners and audience members? Right. So I could think of things from the. The, the 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 vibe the aura of the performer giving the, you know the the interpretation that she's laying down for us or even the very visceral putting yourself out there like giving of yourself it's a very intimate experience right I I think that you know uh, when we we go out on stage and we 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 lay it all out there we're naked man you know mm-hmm. and if we get out there and we, we we screw up something we really lament over that because we are literally nude and laying it all out for like sometimes hundreds of people it's extremely intimate experience I think right yeah yeah oh absolutely and you know when i think about that intimate um experience you know with with music i can't help but to you know think about my own personal training and of course i'm sure you know you have similar thoughts i I almost hate to use the phrase classical music when i when i talk to you because you know your work is is so broad but i mean you you definitely you definitely have that hard classical um foundation you know with your training at um uh, msm i wonder um you know after everything that uh, you've experienced so far in your career, what's your relationship uh, with that word classical or the phrase classical music? You dig? That's heavy, man. And I, I treat that myself. I bring it up a lot. I, I never use the phrase classical music unless I'm making air quotes. Mm. And if I write it, I use quotations because classicism is a period designation, right? Classical is like, to classical is to musical nomenclature what Baroque or neoclassical or romantic is right their period designation so so when we speak of classicism in the in the in the greek sense or the roman sense we're talking about a, a, an attention to symmetry and balance and harmony and so if i want to use that as as the, as the description for classical music i think of lady be good by by charlie parker hmm. i think of giant steps you know uh, 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 Coltrane ain't sliding into any notes, man. They're very clean. They're it's symmetrical. There's a lot of architecture going on. So if we're going to use that word classical, it's it's, it's got to open up to a lot more avenues. Um, I think that usually when I teach people, if I'm doing something like teaching a music appreciation class, what students usually are getting at when they say classical, they want to say Western art music. That's mm-hmm. what they really want. You dig? So yeah, I use classical in a whole different head, Garrett. Much like yourself, I believe. Yeah. I, I wonder if uh, that's something that uh, you sort of believed and practiced, you know, while you were in school at the Manhattan School of Music, because, again, this is one of those, you know, institutions <laughs> that so many of us see as, you know, a pillar of the tradition. Yes. 
Nagar, coming to understand classicism as anything other than Mozart and Beethoven, and that's relatively new for me. I drank the Kool-Aid, right? <laughs> we all do to an extent. <laughs> you know, I, you know, calling Beethoven and Bach the masters, I did, and I still love them, man. But it takes it takes um, an openness and a willingness to expand one's uh, horizons and paradigms to accept new definitions of things. So, no, uh, the the notion that Coltrane could be could, could be a classic, and he spoke on this himself, uh, uh, is 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 you know some. That's come to over the last, you know, 10 years or something like that. Yeah. 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 And we're definitely going to get into um, uh, Ellington and Armstrong and some of uh, Coltrane's, you know, uh, buddies here in a bit. But, you know, alongside, um, you know, uh, the tradition of how we use that phrase classical music in this art form is also the tradition of really focusing in on one thing, you know, really learning how to play the oboe, really learning right. how to play the violin. Right. Uh, but but th- but that's a tradition that you've also sort of uh, broken down. I, w- I wonder if you could speak to that. You study cello, but you do so much yeah. more. You know, it, there's many there's many things that 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 that, that feed that, Garrett. I appreciate the question so much. One part of it is, I guess the bigger part of it is that from a little kid, I always played a few different instruments. My first was the piano and then, you know, some, 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 some zithers and recorders that my parents would buy and then the cello. But I also have to say that that might have remained somewhat dormant if I hadn't gone through certain existential mm, challenges in my life, which caused me to go deep within and bring out the fullness of myself. I speak to that because when I was, you know, once upon a time I was a DMA student at, at, at the University of Houston. And, you know, famously, I, I, for me, DMAs don't work. I don't, you know, how in the world are you gonna get better at the cello by working on papers about the cello? Right. The only way you're gonna get better is practicing the instrument. So, so when my committee started getting really tough and, when, you know, when, when one of my committee members said, hey, listen, all a doctorate is, is your committee members making hoops for you to see how elegantly you can jump through them. Once I could see how pointless that was for me, I began to sort of resent the whole process. And I'm like, at, at that point, I was thinking, what am I going to write my dissertation on? And I'm like, there's nothing I care about. I'm, what am I going to write? Richer cars for the Vila de Gump? How right. boring? Who's going to read that? Right. So you know what I did, Garrett? I started thinking, how do? why don't I write about the Afrocentric connection to Jewish music. That's what I actually got into, man. For some, you know, it's a whole long story behind that, but I started looking at Afrocentrism in quote unquote classical music. That's where it all began for me. And this is around about the year uh, 1999 or 2000 for Mm -hmm. me, maybe 2001 when this happened. And that's when I first began to do really deep studies into, 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 into Coltrane and Monk and Mingus. And I found this whole new world that I didn't know existed before. So yeah, man, that, that that's part of that's partly why I do so much. It's because I went deep within myself and brought out all of the things that are me. Because they say that you know pressure is what makes diamonds, right? Yeah. So under existential pressure, all of me came out, and that's what it ended up being, man. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I actually want to spend a little bit more time talking about this, you know, DMA, Doctorate of Musical Arts, for folks who, who don't know, sort of like the performance side of, you know, people think of yeah. the PhD as the doctorate, but, you know, in performance, uh, right. it's it's the DMA. Uh, yes. do, do, you, do you think that there is, you know, no real use for it? And I'll, I'll put myself out there, you know, when, back when I was right. on the performance scene, um, a, yeah. especially hard, you know, we would often joke around that, 
um, you know, uh, folks with DMAs weren't actually any more qualified as performers than 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 anyone else. I mean, is, is that an yeah. opinion you hold? What 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 is your take on the the, the your unapologetic take on the uh, doctor? Right. Guard? I certainly agree with what you just. They're not any more qualified to speak on stuff or do as to perform than we are. I would say this. I've got some some colleagues, some dear colleagues who 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 are finishing up or who hold who hold DMAs and performance. And I respect them dearly and I, I have no qualms with them. Uh but I would say to as a, I can speak because I'm a PhD student now, right? I'm about to finish up my coursework for a PhD, you know, for, for my degree of philosophy. The only way you're going to get better in philosophy is writing papers and digging into the minds of Hume and Bishop Barclay and all these guys. Mm-hmm. But for me, a performance degree where I'm writing papers makes no sense to me. So I have to say, for me, it didn't work. Um, uh, and I have to admit also a little bit of naivete had I known more about what a doctorate really A doctorate is an academic degree. Mm-hmm. It's academic. And academicism is in large degrees uh, studying, you know, curriculum building and, and, and research. So I... I guess if I had to do it again, I probably could find a robust enough topic where I could appreciate the DMA. But I, 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 I don't really care for it much. And I'm speaking as a PhD candidate, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't, I, I love writing papers. But again, I was studying with a famous performer, Laszlo Varga, who had like the equivalent of a bachelor's degree. Yeah, I'm thinking, why am I getting a DMA from a guy who has a? I mean, it just there's a correlation that doesn't happen there, I think. You know what I mean? Right, right. So, you know, and you talked about those studies where you really dove into Afrocentrism um, in, in yeah. Jewish music. You know, when we when we talk about blackness um, in conjunction with so-called uh, classical music, you know, there are names, yeah. Florence Price, William Grant Still, et cetera, yeah. that, that come up. Um, but yes. in the music that you create and, and center, it's not quite those names. I wonder if you and, and I'm thinking specifically about um, an earlier um, album of yours, The Griot Sings yeah. the Classics. So I, I wonder yeah. how that um, relationship goes into that sort of work, you know, especially considering you were coming back to that work, classic, classical, right? The yeah. Griot Sings the Classic. Where was the shift yes. Um, from, you know, black orchestral and so-called classical music into the broader scene of Afrocentrism in music? So that whole project was born of me. Well, of course, the, the, the shallow is wanting to put something out there as an overview of my work. You mm-hmm. know, but when I started to say to myself, Derek, what will you do? It started out as me doing, you know, it started out many years ago as uh, Fly Me to the Moon, uh, One Mint Julep, and uh, Around Midnight. And I didn't think anything other than these are great tunes. Everybody loves the Quincy and 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 and, and Count Basie and 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 Frank Sinatra flying the moon. That's the quintessential version, mm-hmm. very classic and classical itself. That's how it started. But when I came back to it years later and wanted to finish the album, I said to myself, "What are you going to add? What other tunes are you going to add?" And unconsciously, it became how do I say? it became a doffing of my hat to some of the black uh, luminaries in music because I end the album with four gospel tunes, which mm-hmm. is a very huge part of the African-American tradition. And I start with One Mint Julep, which is actually another Quincy Jones thing that he did with Ray Charles. That's the version I took it from. Fly Me to the Moon is Quincy Jones, right? And then we had a uh, girl from Ipanema. That I came to because I said, okay, Derek, you have to treat this like maybe a jazz set. You've got eight tunes, 
which what we so you know get in there a ballot you already got around midnight get in there a nice latitude so i put uh, uh put eponema in there but garrett what ended up happening is once again my integral blackness informed my project hmm. that was nothing i did on that was just me saying Derek, you can create whatever the heck you want and i picked it and i looked back at it and i'm like there's actually a thread binds all those tunes together and it is the black musical tradition right and and that's sort of what happened i look back i'm like because i think of myself as one of the least Afrocentric people I know, I'm the nerd who's going around <laughs> reading Aristotle and sure. freaking Hume and Plato, and not that any of those things are counterintuitive or counterindicative of, 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 of Afrocentrism, but that's not necessarily what I think of when I think of myself. But yet when I'm called upon to do something that means the most to me, I'm like, look how black I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. And what about the uh, what about the title to the album? The Griot sings the classics. Who, what, who is the Griot? What is what is a Griot for folks who don't know? Right, a Griot is essentially a traditional African storyteller. He's a teacher and he's a leader who leads through the anecdote, the story, the adage, the passing down of oral tradition. And I that was a means of me sort of giving a title to myself and honorific to myself because in the classroom. I, I tell stories. I make every all of my lectures are like me sitting around at a bar just holding forth, right? And I think that's that's how I learn too. When I learn about a person, I want to know about what they did at night, what they what turned them on, where did they party, who did they party with. From when I read about Socrates' life to Plato's, I'm like, okay, I already know what Plato wrote. What was he like as a guy? What was what did he do? You know. Um, and so the griot is me, the storyteller, the storyteller, you know, swings the classics, right? That's where that came from. Yeah. It begins to tell each midnight round midnight. I do pretty well till after Yeah, and when you talk about, you know, telling those stories, you know, I, I would be remiss if I didn't, you know, compliment you on the way you sing those stories. I mean, where did, where, 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 where did you cultivate such a, so, such a, a, a hold of, of your own personal instrument in that way? So I'm a mockingbird, Garrett. I, I, I anything I hear, I replicate. Like this past week, I've been I've been going back and forth with a friend of mine over in Europe about British accents because I'm I'm looking at these different movies and I'm and I'm I just I, I'm picking up this this Mancunian accent I'm breaking it down <laughs> and I'm you know my brother was a thespian so I heard him walking around the house doing different accents and whatnot and I'm turned on you know uh, by what I hear my father my late father was part of a glee club when he was in college he could do far more than carry a tune. My mother, who's with me now, was is still a great soprano. My brother could sing a bit. And then as I got older, I dated a lot of singers. I heard, you know, and again, I heard a lot of stuff. And I never took myself out on stage, including now. I haven't performed as a singer on stage ever. I just, it's something, I, I, my ego doesn't need it. I don't, that's not how I see myself. Mm -hmm. But I've been able to carry a tune for a hot minute, you know. Um, and, and recently, 
especially during COVID, you know, because I'm working on a new thing, mm-hmm. it became important for me to find something to work on to maintain my sanity, you know, and my, 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 my sense of importance to self, you know, and, and, and um, um, I was able to go a whole bunch of different places with my voice. But yeah, it, it's, I, I'm able to emulate what I hear, you know what I'm saying? That's, that's a big part of it. And I think, you know, there's a connection there between, you know, that very classic training that we all got replicating the way that these excerpts are supposed to sound, these concertos, X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Yeah. So with that project, you know, you gave yourself the honorific, uh, the griot. Uh, You're working on a new project um, titled The Incredible. Now, are you also talking about yourself here? You know what, man? Stop busting me out like that. Can I have some sort of mystery? Um, It's... (laughs) It, Garrett, it's more, I'll, I'll give you this, it's a joke. When you when you see the artwork and the way it's laid out, the first mistake that people are going to make is the way I line up the graphics or the, the, the text, it's going to look like the incredible Derek Mention. <laughs> okay? <laughs> because I list my name as the formal, you know, I'm the lead and these other people are, 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 are my side men and women and whatnot. But it, the incredible treats what the album is and what it does. Uh, I named it far after I had begun the product. I didn't know what I was going to name it. And after it grew and became what it was, you know, which I hope we get to speak about a little bit, because it's intriguing, even to me, the only thing I can call it is incredible. Yeah. Uh, um, so no, it has nothing to do with me. You know, you know, a lot of times, when people, you know, when people are titling their albums, they have to find ways to doff their hats at themselves. But no, it's very much more about what the album does or where it goes or where it takes the listener. Yeah, that, that's what's incredible. <laughs> yeah, and, and you actually described it to me as uh, taking the listener from one Negro musical luminary to the next. So how do you define, select these Negro musical luminaries? What do you mean by that? <laughs> so, again, as I started Grio, when I started The Incredible, I said, okay, Derek, when you go into the studio, you can do anything you want, which I think is the greatest thing a composer and arranger could do. You got to let yourself know. You don't have to be married to any tradition. You can do whatever you want. So I, I, I went in there and did that. And I just said, okay, I, I always pick tunes that mean a lot to me that I can get lost and that I love doing because sometimes you got to do a bunch of takes. So you better love doing it because you might yeah. have to do, you know, the same phrase over and over again. Right, right. So it just became, I like this tune. I like that tune. But Garrett, it ended up being 16 tunes. Oh, wow. That's a that's a lot of music. And when I looked at it, I literally I said, I have gone from Scott Joplin to Nat King Cole to Chuck Berry to Ellington to Basie. I did some Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons to God. I'm like, that's incredible. But what the main thing is, is that once again, calling upon my it's method acting. I became a musical method actor. I wanted people to feel what they felt when they heard this old ballad by Nat King Cole. So I unconsciously uh, uh, adjusted my vibrato's oscillation and made it more rapid. And I changed the timbre of my voice. And so when I went from that to Chuck Berry, the orchestration is different. The singing is different. The articulation of the work. And I, when I listened back to it, I'm like, holy crap, look at the, it, unlike any other album I know of, it's like a, it's a, it's a history lesson, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So again, I just said, I want to pick tunes that are, that are, that are dear to me, but it's a panoply of all these different names. And I mean, what, what, what litany of, 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 of Negro luminaries doesn't start with Scott Joplin? We yeah. start right at the top, you know what I mean? And Chuck Berry, the father of rock and roll, he's there too. 
And I'm like, holy hell, I actually did that. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of where that all comes from. <laughs> and and you you mentioned uh, collaborators on this uh, new project. But, you know, yeah. I also understand that a lot of this is your own voice, your own playing. You know, you're yeah. just piecing all of this together. Um, how yes. do how do you make that? How, how do you make that possible? How do you do it? So I'm going to tell you, an, I, I, it, it's if I love a tune, the only way that I we go back to what you started with the whole sexuality of it, I've got to get in there and make love to that. I've got to know every <laughs> inch of the tune. So with that in mind, I stepped into a studio in Winter Park when I laid that when I was tracking uh, this bassy tune. It's a big band tune. And I went in there with no music stand and I said, OK, let me do voice number one you know, playing on cello, the part the cello part. And then I said, voice number two. And after I'd done like 17 voices, the engineer stops. He goes, do you have all this in your head? I'm like, yeah. Doesn't everyone work this way? He's like, uh, no. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I love the tune so much that I know all 47 parts. I could, you know, I could wake up in my sleep and do any of them. Wow. Um, and so that's how I make it happen. That's kind of, I realize, Garrett, that I have a somewhat enviable ability to be able to replicate many voices it's not a braggadocious thing. I've been doing that since I was in third grade, yeah. you know, uh, but, you know, COVID being what it is and taking away, you know, the, the amount of money you have, it's better for me to do that than to try to hire a big band, you know, exactly. the bassy, exactly. there's a bassy tune I did on this album, this 47 tracks. They're all me. They're me and that's <laughs> <sax> player. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And, and the other thing about it, I went and bought, I spent like $57 and bought the, the, the score and the parts to this because I was going to transcribe them. I was like, I don't want to do that. And I did all of those 47 parts by ear. Yeah. And when you hear it, it's, it's basic. And that's another thing. I'm like, this is incredible. You go from the sonic world, meaning not just the same, but the, 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 the chordal structures and the idiosyncrasies, the musical idiosyncrasies of Basie to the slightly different ones in Ellington. Cause those are, you know, those are two guys from the same era, but their orchestrations are different, right? Yeah, yeah. And I do them both by ear. That's another track on there. I do a, a couple of Ellington tunes, and they're huge and contrapuntal. You know, I, I don't know how, to be honest with you, I don't know how I do it, man. That's just my gift <laughs> that I've learned to just sit back and let flow through me. That's that great infinite uh, Afrocentric uh, 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 creative ability, bro. The ancestors speak through me. I just sit back and they come down and they speak through me, you know? Yeah, and I really, really, really appreciate the way that you frame that in getting to know the music better or knowing it so well, because, you know, I don't do it uh, professionally by any means, but, you know, I'll get on my own social media. If there's a song that I, I really like, you know, I feel like getting at the keyboard and playing out those chords and maybe even singing, yes. it, you know, it just, it, it, yeah. it, it, it gives you a, a more personal um, relationship uh, with that music. So I, I really love that you yes. frame it uh, that way. Um, yes. but, it's, but it's not all, um, Derek, the incredible. You, you said you have collaborators no, no, no. Of, of, of this album. Who, who are some of those collaborators and, and what, were, uh, what was their role uh, in, in the creation right of the project? I, I'm glad you gave me the opportunity to talk about that. Thank you. So uh, our, our dear friend, Lady Jess, Jessica McJunkins, yes, has shout a cameo up here that I can't wait till the album. She's so perfect in her role. Like, I, and, and in her case, I was sitting at the, I was sitting at the, at the keyboard one day and this tune was finished and like a flash, I'm like, Derek, you need Jessica to come do her thing on this. And I, was, and I call her up, but she was, you know, amenable to do. It's just something that came to mind out of the blue. So she's on it. Uh, uh, Sean Edmonds, trumpet is on here. Mm -hmm. uh, we do an Ellington tune together. I feature him. 
a, 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 a sax and flute player, a reed player by the name of Jeremy Frotti that I got to know through this album is is there. Um, doing wonderful, wonderful stuff. He'll be he'll be he'll be joining me for other projects. Um, um, uh, Marty Morell, right? The drummer, the former drummer from the Bill Evans trio, oh, who wow. worked with Stan Getz. So he's on there. I'm like so honored. Uh, he's on there, and we we talked throughout the whole project, and I got a lot of great insights and opinions from from Marty. Um, uh, a friend of ours, John C. O'Leary, who who's a great pianist and a freaking physicist. Oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> he's on there. Um, uh, a, a, a keyboard player, uh, an organ player by the name of uh, Rufus McGee Jr. He's on there, makes a great, a great uh, cameo, really, really tasty cameo on there. And let's see, who else do I have? I, 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 um, I think I want, there's one I'm, I'm going to get to that I really want to highlight, but have I talked about everybody? Da, 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 da. I think so. Casey Timmons, who is a amazing singer um, from Houston, is on there. And she like steals the show, man. I, I remember, and so what the, 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 the funny thing, oh, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, another, I knew I was forgetting somebody, another singer by the name of uh, Luisa Maria Hernandez uh, makes the appearance. And so Jessica McJunkins, Luisa Maria Hernandez, uh, uh, Casey Timmons, and Sean Edmonds, I all met through the Sphinx organization. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I all I met them all through Sphinx. And I'm going to tell you, the two singers that I hired, I hired them without hearing them sing a tune. I just knew that I just knew, it. and they both knock it out of the park. It's amazing, uh, and they're they're both phenomenal singers. Luisa Maria is called upon to do some really difficult stuff. She's she's subtly featured, but her role is huge. Like if you see what I'm saying, like what yeah. she's doing is amazing. And I'm I don't know who else I would have asked to have done it. It's amazing. But Casey Timmons walks in. I never forget. I went out to Houston to 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 record a, a couple sessions and she, and you know I met her at Sphinx, you know, the year before or whatnot. And she agreed to come on the on the project. And she goes, what do you want me to do in this tune? And I said, I want you to be you. And it's a gospel tune. I said, you you came up in the same type of church I did. You know what I want. I said, that's one an old fashioned. Mm-hmm. And we opened it up and she went to work. I was like, God, nothing like being shown up on your own freaking album. You know what I mean? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we build a choir to get, so we together are a gospel choir. She's phenomenal. And uh, she's featured on two tunes and she's going to be, she's a member of the mentioned family, the Blue Clock uh, Records family. Now, like whenever I do an album, when I need a female vocalist, she's, she's, she's my Florence Ballard from the freaking Supremes, dude. Yeah. That's her. <laughs> she's amazing. Like I, I listen to the master's, like every few nights and i'm just blown away because she like me she just walks in there there's nothing written down she just harmonizes with herself and creates these delicious tapestries these contrapuntal tapestries i'm just like what in the world is happening and if you the 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 the, the timbre of her voice the intensity of it the artistry of what she puts together is just world class so she we're introducing her we're bringing her to the fore on this album so it was a gas working with these eight artists man it really was yeah um you mentioned you know listening back to those masters and i actually hadn't planned on asking you but you made me think you know there's a conversation um in so many fields of music maybe not necessarily classical so-called classical but certainly in other uh black fields of music where um and and beyond where artists are beginning to talk about owning these masters ownership of this intellectual uh property Mm -hmm. is this um is this content that that you own personally yeah it definitely is yeah i own it what what, what, is, uh, and, the, what and, is the importance of that what why is that significant well 
basically it's up to me whether I want to sell them off to anybody. But mm. when I get done with, cause you know, I'm waiting for all my licenses to come in and I'm going to launch this project, hopefully, you know, right at the end of this month. But I like, it's my record label. That's the other thing. Like no one could come in and say, well, we're going to get a percentage of this through Derek because we introduced like, no, I'm the producer. I'm the executive producer, the producer, uh, the record label owner and everything. Yeah. These are now they're all, you know, I am a composer, but as yet I have not done my own stuff. I don't feel that that's where I really can shine. Yeah. Um, I, I, I can, it's just, it, it's not, that's not what I really feel like doing. I really shine as an arranger, but yeah, owning my masters means that if someone comes and says, Hey, I have, a, I have this scene that could happen. We all know to some degree, Jay-Z, but Kanye too, likes some of these old tracks, right? Yeah. And so he could come to me and say, hey, man, I heard your album. I'd like to, I'd like to uh, sample you. What do I need to offer you for the whole album? The, 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 the conundrum or the, the place I'd be, the problem I'd have is this for me right now, Garrett, is the most that I have to, this is my magnum opus. Mm -hmm. This is Derek mentioned doing everything possible he could do. So it's priceless to me. But if someone comes to me with a paycheck, am I willing to sell 16 tunes off for infinitely less than what they're worth to me? You know what I'm saying? Right. That's what, that's the conversation we start having about these masters. I, I'm a visual artist and I do, you know, if you see on Facebook, I do these caricatures and I hang them up in my house. I quit competing as an, as an artist uh, in my teens, I think, right? I do these things to put in my house. Well, recently a few people have said, Hey, how much would it be, you know, to, to, to buy your, your Thelonious Monk? I'm like, I can't, what do you mean? Right. You, no, baby. You want to offer me a million? I might move with, because Garrett, that's priceless. It's a one-off. Right. I didn't make any prints of that. That's me. It's, you know, that's, that adds a spiritual dimension to my, to my studio where he hangs. I can't give that up. You know what I mean? And I'm here to negotiate with people now, but they're like, Hey, well, how much would it be to buy your whole set of Beethoven? I'm like, are you really? I wait a minute. There's a story. The Beethoven that I did, I hadn't done a major drawing in 25 and 30 years. Yeah. And this is the first one, and it's a successful. I you have a you have five million, <laughs> and, and nobody's gonna pay. You know what I'm saying? It's like that's what we start talking about. We start talking about owning your own music, and when we start talking about the music industry, the operative word is industry. It's about money changing hands. So again, we go back to the Kanye. Well, Derek, how much would it be for me to buy your, your Chuck Berry tune? Like, and here we go from something being priceless to me, to me selling it for mere coins right. and it not being mine ever again. That's a philosophical place that this conversation about owning your own masters takes you. It's a really serious thing, you know? Yeah, yeah absolutely agree. And, you know, on the non-fiscal side, on the non-money side of this, yeah. you know, all of this priceless content, of course, um, yeah. is is the preservation and, and the hope that, you know, future generations can learn and thrive off, off of yeah. the creation of, of so much of this. Um, I think it's safe to say that you sort of um, do that work in real time uh, as a teacher. Yeah. I, I wonder how all of these trainings, all of these skills uh, you have and all of these stories that you can tell, how yeah. that manifests for you um, in the classroom in front of students or maybe even virtually, I guess, these days. Sure, virtually. It's... It it's a little bit tougher virtually. I have to really bottle my humor and be able to put it in all the, the, the rhetoric that I type for, for, for my students to see in discussion boards. But when I stand up in front of a, a class, if I have an aura at all, it's made up of all these things you and I are talking about. You know, I, 
I'm, I teach the humanities, the arts throughout history. So I come from a specific place. I don't have to talk about the arts as a historian. I'm an artist talking about art. Mm -hmm. You know, when when I look back at, at, you know, the earliest art that I saw that I was turned on by was the works of uh, Michelangelo and Leonardo. And I've I've been studying, I've been into Michelangelo. I've been into both those guys since I was about four, right? And so when I think about Michelangelo, I don't just think of the Sistine Chapel, I think of his sonnets, what he wrote in his life and what he went through and what his genius meant to him. He comes, he comes down from the scaffolding. And I think he was 36 years old. He goes, my God, my, I'm 36 and my genius is killing me. I look like I'm 90, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and, and so when I stand in front of the classroom, I bring all of this to bear. If a student asks me, you know, questions, which I love, like they ask the most unpredictable questions, um, you know, well, like I introduced Michelangelo as being suicidally Catholic. I do that to piss people off and have them. Why do you say that? It opens up this conversation, which I'm able to lead them in because I do my research. Like I being a scholar, calling myself, that's kind of funny to me because I just love to read. That's the only way to know stuff. If if a person no longer is here, how the hell are you going to get to, you got to read, you got to open the books. You got to listen to, you know, adages and about them. And so, that's how you inform yourself. And, and I sort of try to make that infectious to my students. To, to, to sh- once, once upon a time, uh, I think it was, well, someone was point, point, pointing, uh, pointing to Pablo Casals and said that, you know, to be, uh, to be a geek, to be a nerd is hot. That's yeah. sexy, man. You know, to be a real geek and know some stuff, that's, that, that's pretty hot, you know? And I try to infuse that into my students, especially in today's post-truth society. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. Yeah. And and there's so many connections I can make there, especially uh, with your mentioning uh, Pablo Casals. But, um, you know, but of course, you mentioned Michelangelo and to tie it back around to the conversation of sex. There's, of course, that very Uh sexy uh, statue of David that he most famously uh, (laughs) put together. Uh, but, yes. but, but uh, before I um, uh, ask you my uh, uh, final question for you, I, I wonder how folks can um, get uh, into the work you're doing, uh, learn about right uh, your future projects, including uh, The Incredible and everything else you're doing. Thank you so much. Um, so I, my 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 Grill album is on Amazon. Uh, it's on many it's on many uh, platforms. Amazon helps. I didn't realize that they rate their albums and that went to like number two or number three twice, oh, wow. you know, in a year. So I love it if people cop that album from there. Um, my my Incredible is going to be on several uh, platforms as well. Spotify, iTunes, Apple Music, and, and Amazon as well. Um, I, you know, I encourage people to follow me on Instagram or, or Facebook. It's just simple, D-E-R-E-K-M-E-N-C-H-A-N. Uh, and and check me out that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm on Twitter as well. I think I'm the Uber mentioned or something there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But social media is the way to, to to follow me. I'm I'm always posting some stuff somewhere, so that would be groovy. I'd love it if people check that out. Thank yeah, you. yeah. Well, you know, the last thing I wanted to ask you, you know, because you're so used to um, standing in front of the classroom, you know, we've shared yeah. uh, the stage as performers and speakers at Sphinx, which you mentioned. So, you know, yeah. um, what so on on this platform of mine, you know, I wonder what yeah. your words are um, for us, the young black women and black men trying to create um, and, and trying to make a way. You know, what what, what, what do you have hmm. to say? Wow. Wow. Um, I believe the greatest power is an authenticity. And if we're speaking in tones and music, you shine brighter, you're in tune more 
when you speak from whatever your core is. Uh, and whomever you are, whatever, however you program, whatever it is you have to say, don't let the commerciality of the industry, whatever industry you're in, change your narrative. There's something that we sensitives can hear when you speak from your core, you know, and I, again, like brilliance, brilliance is born there. I remember if I could use a personal story for this last thing, I did a, I did a that's a lecture once on the signifying monkey, uh, which I'd love to talk with you about sometime. But it's the toast where this monkey who represents, and not in a bad way, the person who can signify, represent their own spin on language. Mm -hmm. Black people, they, he was able to make a fool out of the, out of the, uh, um, the lion who represents the bourgeois white. But in any event, I lectured to a bunch of white people that I knew were against me. And they didn't know I was talking to them about them. Yeah. And then and, and, and what I told them, I said, it's because of you that I've become brilliant. All I ever wanted to do was sit down at the table with you and talk, but you never let me there. So because you won't, I had no choice but to become everything I need myself to be. And I said, and now you will never know if I'm laughing at you or because of you or with you. And it's <laughs> your fault because all I ever wanted to do was sitting up with you and you didn't allow me at the table so i would say to young people don't wait till someone confirms or affirms you get to know as early as you can your inner voice what makes you tick who you are and never deviate from speaking from that core it's the most valuable thing you can do the buddha even says that <laughs> out of how many people you can emulate be yourself that's what's the most valuable to the world yeah Thank you once again to Derek Minchin for uh, coming on. I uh, hope you will check out his album, The Incredible, that's uh, coming out. Um, there's also um, The Griot uh, Sings the Classics, one of his previous projects already available on Spotify now. I'll have a couple of those on the Triloquy uh, Tracks playlist. Um, Scott, uh, at Sphinx, you know, I don't know if you remember, but you actually saw Derek live. He was on one of the panels that I uh, facilitated, the one on uh, programming, evergreen programming. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, shout out. Shout out to him uh, doing some incredible work out there, uh, down there in Florida, in the classroom and, and elsewhere. All right. So uh, how about we get into the triloquy? Oh, yeah. So um, as I uh, sort of mentioned uh, all the way back in the introduction, um, I watched Prince of Egypt this weekend. And uh, Scott and I are going to have a conversation about Moses and Ramses and, and, and things there. But before uh, we completely left the conversation of sex for the 69th opus. Um, Scott, I thought this would be a good um, opportunity to talk about um, sex education and how it sucks and not <laughs> in the good way. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> so uh, I don't know. I, I feel like there are a, a couple similarities between our experiences therein, because obviously, um, and, and I'm going to just speak plainly here, I didn't learn about um, stimulation of the prostate in school, you know, and there are certain things, you know, back in your day 
that maybe they will learn about, you know, these days when it comes to just regular old, so-called regular old straight sex education. But, you know, even, you know, cis white men like you had some dark spots in the education, huh? And, and there are probably some women who can speak to it. I'm just joking. <laughs> Man. I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. I'm kidding. I'm, I'm going to remember <laughs> that one. I'll remember I'm, that. I'm kidding. But anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so, okay, fine. Fine, fine. I take it back. <laughs> no, we're good. Um, yeah, uh, let's see. We had uh, sex education one afternoon uh, in seventh grade. And it was taught by the guy who was also the wrestling coach. Oh, gosh. So I'm sure that was plenty toxic. So... <laughs> pins of different kinds going on but um you know you, you know he had the he had that uh, that kind of voice that if you ever got a cold you couldn't understand anything he said because he just talked kind of monotonous all the way through us so if you you know if you were sick it just sounded like he was going and that was just sex ed and that was sex ed and he had a couple transparencies you know for the overhead projector that he put up, uh, where they put up the the male genitalia, and it and it looks sort of like a mannequin butt with a flap of skin. I don't know what that was. <laughs> um, and if it if it if it really speaks to the quality, the low quality of the education, I don't remember what they showed for women genitalia. And, I, and like you said, I'm sure that there are some people out there who. You're going to hang. Who you suffered. Are just, I can't make a fucking joke without you. Just <laughs> Can I not make a joke? Of can course you can. Okay. Well. And I will react. <laughs> All I'm saying is, well, my word, I won't speak for you, my word, and, and I hope it's happened by now. Uh, you know, this is 2020. You know, there needs to be sex. And we talked about, uh, I talked about this with Marvell Terry, you know, previous mm-hmm. uh, guest on Triloquy. We, we need to, um, you know, understand that when we talk about equitable work, equitable practices, you know, it's not just race. You know, there are times when a queer person um, who is in the, I don't know what grade sex is, seventh grade, 10th grade, whatever, you know, where they need to learn as well. And it's not just about getting pregnant, how not to get pregnant, you know, uh, STIs and, and of course the religious aspect of it that some people hold on to. I think we need to not be afraid to teach young people about the pleasure of sex because, you know, I joke about, oh, how many women were disappointed by you, Scott, whatever. Okay, let's take you out of it. Think, and let's center the women. Think about the millions of women who over the course of their lives had to deal with unpleasurable sex because whatever man that they're with either don't care or didn't learn or whatever, you know, even I, just the first experience though. I mean, yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, my first experience was horrible. You, you talked about yours being horrible, but what if we, <laughs> and, and it sounds radical, but what if we learned how to do it right? What if we learned in, in sex ed, how to do it right? And, and we're maybe we're, maybe we're 10 to 15 years off from that. <laughs> Probably, probably. But because what if? But I answer, but, but as what I if, was Scott? growing, I, that would be wonderful because as I was growing up, they tried to. I felt like my parents were trying to keep it from me, right? <laughs> because they were hoping that I didn't go over and you know, while the neighbors were upstairs having their cocktail hour, hoping that I didn't get too far and end up with a, a pregnancy while I was still in high school. Child, That's the only thing. So if they could have 
hogtied me in my room <laughs> for the weekend they would have. Sure, sure. My my parents are probably hoping that I would. Just... <laughs> okay. Anyway. Okay, anyway, we're moving on. Um, I wanted to quickly reprise uh, once again the cold open. I have to maintain the ancient traditions. I bear the weight of my father's crown. His hands bore the blood of thousands of children. My people. And I can no longer hide in the desert while they suffer at your hands. So that interchange is uh, from the um, Pixar movie Prince of Egypt between um, Ramses, the Pharaoh of Egypt, and Moses, who, you know, for all of his life thought he was the brother of Ramses, but found out that, you know, his mom put him in a basket and floated him down river. And, you know, if you know the story, you know the story. So that exchange comes after Moses comes back to Egypt after, you know, being in the desert and discovering himself. And when I got to that point in the movie, Scott, I couldn't help but to think about you and I because I'm in this situation now where I am really trying to just bust down all of the institutions, including um, public media, because of what it stands for in my in my mind, in my experience, and the work it's not pushing forward. So, um, and then of course, you know, there's always going to be folks um, in my inbox and whatever questioning your role on a on a project like this. You know, identity aside, the the sort of um, schism, the professional schism that is uh, between us now. So, you know, I, I wanted your opinion. When it comes to breaking down, helping me, being an ally to, to just me personally, is it possible for you to change, to disrupt from the inside, considering, you know, what disruption from the inside got me? Is that something that's really possible to be done? I'm going to have to find out, aren't I? I suppose so. So we were talking earlier about how you feel like you're going through a relationship breakup yeah. 20 years in classical music and now all of a sudden you don't have a connection to it, right? Right, right. not a professional connection right. anyway. Right, so imagine being married to someone for 30 years and then you hit a huge major rough patch. Do you throw it out or do you try to work through it and make it what you thought that it was all about or what you really wanted it to be all about. Because um, you know that I've come to you numerous times about my presence on this and isn't as appropriate and, and yeah. most recently going, you know, am I going to be a distraction? Right. So this is something that is in, in the forefront of my mind all the time. And I don't know yet. But I can tell you that with 30 years invested in this, I'm not ready to walk away from it yet. I'm just not. And I hear you and I understand all of the things that you say, Garrett, and that's what breaks my heart is to, is to hear that and know it. And I, I'm, I'm very glad that you have landed on your feet because in a lot of ways I feel like I'm picking up the pieces. And I don't know that it's safe to say that I've landed on my feet because when my, you know, you're when my still flipping money, in midair, man. When, when my little money is run out, you know, how, you know, will I just deliver pizzas and, and sell weed and, and live my life? I mean, maybe that will be a happier experience for me. You know, I, I have to go through those, 
those thought processes. But, you know, in the middle of those nights when I can't sleep, I just think about the road that is behind me and and I have to keep going. I just have sure. to. I, I, I can't not, you know, for the sake of, of, of you know, that 12 year old today who is opening a bassoon case for the first time, you know, yeah, I, you yeah. know, what, what can I do for that person? What options can, can be before that person that, that was not there for me, you know, and, and, you know, that, that's what I spent a lot of my time thinking about, but I, I still can't help but to consider the fact that there are certain institutions that are standing in our way that don't want to make the change that folks like me want to see. And the organization that you work for is one of them. And, you know, I, I'm not I'm not sitting here telling you to to quit your job, you know, as much as I'm saying that. It's something that I think about. I know it's something that you think about, and it's something that I hope everyone listening knows that we both think about and and, and talk about. There are privileges on both sides of this conversation. There are things that I can do that you can't, um, and vice versa. More for in for you, I I would still say, but 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 even so, um, I think it's it's conversations that 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 are important to have. You know, if there are folks in your, we're getting up on election season. You know, getting up on Thanksgiving when people, you know, come together, I don't know, this year, you know, and, and talk about politics over the, the, the table or whatever. What, what, what I'm hoping that people can do is really to not be afraid to go there and have a conversation that might challenge both sides. You know, we, we kind of use the metaphor of the relationship. Um, I my measure of a great relationship, romantic, sexual, platonic or otherwise, is how comfortable I feel bringing up certain things Mm -hmm. and knowing that it's not at the end of the day, it's not going to fracture the relationship, you know. So, um, you know, full transparency here, Scott, thinking about you playing nice with some of my former colleagues and the woman who fired me, it really boils me up sometimes. But you know, as promised before we even started Triloquy, our friendship comes first, and 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 I and I ground that, and that that is important to me. But I definitely sit up here angry sometimes. Well, you are in a better position to navigate this current landscape than I am. All right, fifty years old white guy in classical music. If I leave, I have to go sell mattresses or insurance or something like that because I'm radioactive. Right. Nobody else, in this in the, today, I would not get another job. You have people in your DMs in your inbox. Mine. It's it's like my grandmother's underwear drawer. Nobody's been in there for a while. <laughs> so for the sake of not sounding like these people that we've been dragging over, over the weeks, you know, y'all are erasing white men. What What is your reaction to that? What does that mean to you that? In, you know, some, uh, I don't mean to use the word hyperbolic, but but some, uh, you know, made up situation. I'm, I'm losing my, th- this Hennessy is kicking in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, some made up situation, you know, where I would get a job and you wouldn't. You know, I think it's fair to, to explore that idea. But the reality is the institutions will not have people like me, but they will have people like you. So I don't know if that, if that thing that you're, you're speaking up is true completely. Well, let's go back to that New York Times article. Is, is this little rush to get black composers on programs for orchestras, is that going to last, right? So right now, 
Garrett, people like young people of color and musicians are the future of this business and of this medium. Okay, I've told you several times I'm a dinosaur in this. I know I'm a dinosaur in this. I, and if I leave, it's a total career change. So not wanting to give up on a 30-year relationship coupled with, I got to pay bills. Right. Okay, so don't think that I'm not having this conversation because it, it gives me heartburn and angina <laughs> and keeps me up late. Yeah. And, and I've lost like 15 pounds in, in, the, in the last month and a half. Yeah. So thank you for that. But I, I feel like hell. So. But those, those feelings are real. You know, those, those, I, I can't help the feeling of just you know, being, being abandoned in some state called Minnesota far away from home. Thank God I have Dell here. You know, the, the, the feelings are real. That, that's, that, that, that's my only point. So, Valid, I hear you. Yeah. Anyway, um, continue to, 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 to do good work up there, I guess, with, with, with all of your, your colleagues. I hope you'll tell them I said hello. Hello. <laughs>